general. It refers to hermeneutics, the rules of interpretation for just any broad category of literature. So when you read an email, you use general hermeneutics. It's the rules applied to any form of literature. Special hermeneutics. If general hermeneutics apply to any form of literature, special hermeneutics apply to what? Specific forms of literature. In, in our case, Scripture. How do we interpret Scripture? There are special principles that we apply to Scripture that we don't apply to others. And then we talked last week about revelation, not the book. What is revelation? Someone said unveiling. Uncovering. Things to come. It's God unveiling, uncovering, revealing, exposing, you might say shining some light upon his nature, his works, and his will. What is the ultimate form of revelation? What is the ultimate revelation of God? Jesus. Uh, John 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. He has exegeted him. He has made him clear. Jesus told the Pharisees, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the ultimate representation, the ultimate revelation of God himself. God also gave revelation to apostles and prophets. And he gave that revelation in many different ways. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God having spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. What are some of the different ways that God spoke to and gave revelation to the prophets? That's an easy... Huh? Visions. Dreams. The burning bush. A donkey. Speaking from heaven. An audible voice. God gave direct revelation to those prophets. Now, when God gave revelation to the prophets, did he just kind of leave it up to the prophet to figure it out? Or did he give the prophet the ability to understand the revelation? When God spoke to Moses, Moses didn't need to do hermeneutics to figure out what God meant. He knew exactly what God meant because God supernaturally gave him the ability to understand the message. And then when Moses went and told Israel, God also supernaturally gave him the ability to communicate that message and to communicate it just as accurately as when he had received it. So that the people of Israel received the revelation of God as purely and without error as Moses did when he received it directly from God. God directed his language, his his speech, so that his revelation was perfectly received. And then when the prophet sat down to write it, God also protected his revelation there. What is that called? When God protects his revelation in written form. That is true. It is special revelation. Well, let me ask the question better. What is the, what is the process that we call God protecting his written revelation? Inspiration. God inspired the text. And he inspired it so you could be sure that what you have in your Bible is the exact same prophecies, the exact same revelation that the prophets and the apostles received. And it is just as pure and just as perfect as it was when the prophet received it. 
Because if a prophet gives bad prophecy, if the prophet reveals the wrong things and says, thus saith the Lord, and then what follows after it isn't actually from the Lord, what happens to the prophet? He dies. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Whether the prophet was speaking it or the prophet writes it down, he really doesn't want to get this wrong. And we have a promise directly from God that God protected it when he wrote it down. It's inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, 16, we looked at this last week. We're just doing some review here. All scripture, every bit of it, every word, every sentence, every paragraph is inspired, breathed out by God. The Old Testament is inspired. The New Testament is inspired. Biblical doctrine says inspiration is the, the doctrine that the Holy Spirit so guided the biblical writer that even the individual words and details are what God intended to be written. Every word matters because every word comes from God. Inspiration is how God protects his revelation when the prophet writes it. And it ensures that the revelation that you receive in your Bible is without error and without mistakes. And the end result is that the inspired text is the Word of God. The words that you read in your Bible are the words of God. Now, we say that they're the words of God, but they are also the words of men. When Matthew wrote his gospel, did God dictate that to Matthew? Matthew, sit down, write this. No. Did God turn Matthew into a puppet and force Matthew to write something? No, he wrote it through a human being. 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes down from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Men spoke from God. It came from God through a man. When we say the Scriptures are inspired, we're saying that the writing, that in writing Scripture, the human authors spoke God's Word, what God wanted to say. How many of you would be willing this morning to affirm inspiration of Scripture and say it is true? Okay. Welcome aboard to the inspiration train, because the moment you say, I affirm that, that God wrote Scripture through men, the moment you affirm that, there are some necessary and logical consequences of that affirmation. I call it the inspiration train, because once you get on, you just can't get off. It's, it's just Once the train starts moving, once you accept the locomotive, you have to take everything that follows. And there are some necessary and logical consequences that come from saying, God wrote Scripture. One of those is the doctrine of inerrancy. How many of you have heard this before? Inerrancy. Okay. Inerrancy literally means to be without error. That the Bible has no errors, it has no mistakes in it. Biblical doctrine says when applied to Scripture, it means that the Bible is without error in the original copies. It is therefore free, when properly interpreted, from affirming anything that is untrue or contrary to fact. Now, I will have you note it says in the original copies. That's not talking about the paper or the papyrus or the animal skin that he, he was writing on. That's talking about the content of what was written. And we have that content preserved 
for us. And to the extent that your Bible lines up with the content of what was given, you have an inerrant text, free from all error. This is a good definition, but I think it leaves some questions. Because you have to ask the question, well, when you say there's no errors, what do you mean by that? Right? Yeah. What do we mean when we say there's no errors in Scripture? And there are some who would point to passages like 1 Corinthians 10, verse 8. Nor let us act in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. 23,000 fell. Numbers 25, verse 9, talks about the same judgment. So those who died by the plague were 24,000. Some would look at that and say, that's an error. They clearly contradict each other. One says 23,000, one says 24,000. And you're going to tell me the Bible is inerrant? How do we understand problems like this? I think Charles Ryrie gives a good definition that just adds a little bit more to our understanding of it. Charles Ryrie defined inerrancy this way. The inerrancy of the Bible means simply that the Bible tells the truth. Truth can and does include approximations, free quotations, language of appearances, and different accounts of the same event as long as these do not contradict. So when we go back to our verses here, notice it includes approximations, free quotations, language of appearances, and different accounts of the same event. Language of appearances would refer to um, the sun stood still. People today say, see, the Bible's in error. The sun doesn't move. So saying the sun stood still is saying that the sun moves at some point, and that's obviously not true. But he's talking about his, the appearance of the sun. The sun stood still. The sun rises in the morning. That's the appearance as it appears to the author, right? But I want to note on, it includes approximations. 23,000 fell in one day. In one day is an important phrase here. 23,000 fell in one day. Numbers 25 does not say 24,000 fell in one day, does it? It says 24,000 died by the plague. So both can be true. Both are true. Paul is focusing on how many died in a single day, whereas Moses is writing how many died in the entire plague itself. If the plague lasted one or two or three or four days, he's giving you the total number. Every word is inspired. You have to read the whole verse and you take every word into account. Okay. But I've seen problems, I've seen hurricanes and tornadoes, and you don't get these nice clean words or nice clean numbers like this. Exactly 23,000 died. Exactly 24,000. That can't be right. When a tornado comes, it's not exactly 100 people die. Let me give you an illustration. This is an approximation. He's not saying this is the exact number. It's an approximation. Let me give you an example. If you were to ask someone, how much money did you make last year? And they said, I made $100,000. And then you see their income tax return. I don't know, maybe you're doing their taxes. 
and their income tax return says they made $100,524. Did they lie to you when they told you they made $100,000? No. They gave you an approximation. What they said was still true. What Moses and Paul here wrote may not be the exact number, but it's an approximation. And inerrancy allows for approximations. It allows for them to give an approximate number. Let's try this another way. It also allows for free quotations. Yes or no? Does the Bible say you should not tell a lie? How many of you would say yes? The Bible says that. Colossians 3.9 says, do not lie to one another. Did I accurately convey what the Bible says? I didn't quote it directly, but I accurately conveyed it. It doesn't require the, the Bible quote things directly and exactly, right? When you go into the New Testament, you'll find quotations of the Old, and you can look back into the Old Testament and say, oh, that's not exactly the way it was. Well, that's true, but the Holy Spirit is the author of the Old and the New, and he is permitted to quote himself as he sees fit. And if he would like to quote himself with a free quotation, he's allowed to do that. He doesn't have to use it exactly the way it was. Yes, ma'am. That, that could also cause a difference in, in uh, quotation, is when you translate it into a different language, the quotation changes. And you see that with the inscription over Jesus' head uh, when he was crucified. They were written in several different languages, and you see it translated in different ways. So, that is true. So, when we talk about inerrancy, we're not saying that the Bible does not give free quotations. We're not saying it doesn't use approximations. Those are permissible. Those are not errors. We're also not talking about grammatical errors. Inerrancy does not say there is no grammatical error in the text. Grammatical errors are the result of human beings speaking. Um, I'm probably going to make some grammatical errors somewhere in my presentation this morning. Grammar is defined by the language and the culture. When you go back and you study Greek or Hebrew or any other language, you have to learn the grammar. And that grammar can change with time. Uh, Joel Beakey said the question of errors in the Bible pertains to what the writers declared, taught, and communicated, not the grammar that they, need, uh, that they use to say it. I can say something and make a minor grammatical error, and it still mean what it's supposed to mean. You can still understand it. Um, think about your young child who comes to you, and they try to, you know, a three- or four-year-old try to say something to you. Bad grammar, but you can piece it together and figure out what it means. And there are some areas where they say, well, the grammar isn't wonderful. It doesn't need to be wonderful. It's not a grammar book. That's not the point. And you wouldn't say that it, a grammatical error means that someone is being deceptive. You wouldn't accuse your child of being deceptive because they use bad grammar. So when we talk about inerrancy, we're not talking about grammatical errors. When we say that the Bible is inerrant, we're not saying that it's a, a grammar textbook. We're not saying that it doesn't give free quotations or approximations. Charles Ryrie, the Bible is inerrant in that it tells the truth and it does so without error in all parts and with all its words. There is no deception in the Bible. 
What the Bible says is true is true. What the Bible says is false is false. What the Bible calls sin is actually sin. That's what it's talking about. The Spirit works through His Word. The Word comes from Him, and He works through that Word. And everything it says is absolutely true. Which means, if the Bible says that Adam and Eve were the first humans to live on earth, whether you agree with the grammar or not, the statement is still true. If it says Isaiah went to heaven and saw the Lord high and lifted up, you know what that means? Isaiah went to heaven and saw the Lord high and lifted up. If the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, that means that is actually true. There's no error in that account of how creation happened. It is pure truth with no deception, no misinformation, no taint. So what are some biblical proofs of inerrancy? How can we prove inerrancy from Scripture? Well, there's actually quite a lot of them, which we don't have time to go through them all, but let's just start here. Did Jesus think the Bible was inerrant? Because if Jesus thinks the Bible is inerrant, I think we're on safe ground saying the Bible is inerrant. Did Jesus think the Bible was inerrant? Did Jesus believe that the Old Testament gave myths and legends? Did he look at the Old Testament and say, well, you know, we can't really trust those facts in there. We, we just have to kind of second-guess them and say those aren't really true. Think about Jesus' discussion in Matthew 19. The Pharisees come and start asking him about divorce and marriage. Does Jesus just say, well, you know, my, my opinion is, he points back to Adam and Eve as real people. In Matthew 24, Jesus is describing the end times. And he describes the days of Noah before the flood. He doesn't call it a myth. He doesn't call it a legend. He describes it as an actual historical event that really occurred. In Matthew 10, verse 15, he speaks of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And actually, a couple times he tells people the judgment day will be easier for the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for you. Jesus viewed the destruction of those cities as a real event, a truthful event. And even a story that some would say is far-fetched, like the story of Jonah being swallowed by a whale... Jesus affirms is absolutely true and describes it as a real event. And you read some commentators and, or some people, some critics of the Bible, and they'll turn around and tell you, well, these people that you hear about and that you read about in the Bible, they didn't actually exist. These weren't real people. You want to know some of the characters Jesus affirms as being actual real people from the Old Testament? Isaiah, Elijah, Daniel, Abel, Zechariah, David, Moses, and the patriarchs. Those are some of the people he points back to the Old Testament and speaks to them as real people who actually lived, and he takes the Old Testament as being historical fact, not a bunch of pleasant stories. Jesus clearly believed the Old Testament to be an accurate and factual account of real history. And he never gave any indication in any of his sermons, in any of his speeches, that this was not true. 
that there was something in the Old Testament you could not understand. Um, biblical doctrine, speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, throughout this discourse, Jesus corrected only the misinterpretation of Scripture. He never once even hinted at the possibility that biblical integrity may be in doubt. And the gospel accounts make clear that Jesus never hesitated to confront error. What they're saying here is if there was some kind of error in the Old Testament, Jesus would have confronted it because he didn't back away from error. If the Old Testament got something wrong in the flood, he would have told you about it. And he didn't. He clearly believes scriptures to be trustworthy and truthful. What about the psalmist? Let's look at the Old Testament and what evidence we have in the Old Testament. The psalmist, Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tried. He is a shield to, those, to all who take refuge in him. That word there for tried refers to being tested by fire. It's what they use when they refine gold. You take gold out of the ground and you stick it in the fire and you heat it up. It's how you prove that it's genuine, true gold. And the psalmist says the word of God is tried. It's been tested. It's been proven trustworthy. It is genuine. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of Yahweh are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the ground, refined seven times. Pure words, not mixed with any deception, not mixed with any fanciful stories or myths. Psalm 119, verse 40, your word is exceedingly refined, therefore your slave loves it. Refined, purified, tested, absolutely reliable in everything it says. Now, wouldn't you know, there are some people who deny this. Actually, there's a lot of people who deny this. And there's some people who deny this, and they make it sound like they support it, but they're actually giving a denial. I have an example for you. The Roman Catholic Church. They have a form of inerrancy, but they actually change it. Let me show you. The Catholic Catechism. This is kind of a long quote, but you'll see why, why I put it in here. The inspired books teach the truth. So far, so good. Since, therefore, all the inspired authors or, or sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit, we must acknowledge that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided to the sacred Scriptures. Do you see the problem in this? Catholic Church will hold that the only areas of Scripture that are inerrant, that are without error, are the sections of Scripture that deal with salvation. Now, my first question is, how do you distinguish between those? Because some would say creation has nothing to do with salvation. And therefore, they would say it's errant, it has errors. Paul would disagree with them on that. Paul clearly believed creation was a part of salvation. Catholic Church holds that it's only inerrant when it's talking about salvation. Pope Pius XI, in an encyclical, which was actually used by their councils, said this, The sacred books of the Old Testament are exclusively the Word of God and constitute a substantial part of His revelation. They are penetrated by a subdued light, harmonizing with the slow development of revelation, the dawn of a bright day of redemption. Here it is. As should be expected in historical and didactic books, they reflect in many particulars the imperfection, the weakness, and the sinfulness of man. I gave you the rest of that for context. 
they reflect the sinfulness of man. The Catholic Church affirms that there are errors of the Bible that are not true because the human authors of Scripture were sinful. And we would affirm that the authors, human authors, were sinful. But I would take that as a fundamental denial of inspiration. What's the logical result when you deny inerrancy? What is the logical result of denying inerrancy? Let's just say you were to say, well, I think most of the Bible is true. 99% of the Bible is true, but there's this 1% of the Bible that is not true. You can't trust any of it. Because I don't have an infallible list of errors or mistakes. And if I say that 1% of the Bible is error or is wrong, and I don't know what it is, that means I cannot come to the text and ask the question, what does the text mean? What's the first question I have to ask? Is it even true? Now that presents a really big problem for you. If you have to ask, is it true, before you can look at what it means, then how do you prove it's true? You have to go find evidence. Okay. Let's ask this question. If you have to go find evidence, what evidence can you find for the existence of God? Uh, I knew it. In a biblical church, I was going to get a biblical answer. I love it. But here's the problem. When you say 1% of the Bible is not true, and you point to creation, where did you get that from? The Bible. Which means I'm going to point you back to Psalm 19 and Romans 1. I'm going to say, first prove those are true before you can tell me that. See the problem you end up? Now you have to find evidence for the existence of God outside of Scripture because you can't trust what Scripture says. And how many years, how many millennia have been people have people been trying to do that? Okay, well, maybe we should step back away from the really hard question. Um, what about the miracles? What about the evidence for the resurrection of Lazarus? Or the feeding of the 5,000? Or Jesus walking on water? Or here's, here's a minor one. How about some evidence for the incarnation? Where are you going to go to find evidence to prove those are true? I'm sorry? The Bible? But if 1% of the Bible is not true, you got to prove that's true first. So you could try to go to secular history, but the logical problem there is if you say, well, I can't trust the Bible because it's written by men, you also can't go to secular history because that's written by men too. Yeah, you rely on the infallible magisterium. Yeah. But that's still not evidence, is it? It still doesn't get you back to proving that what the Bible says is true. When you deny inerrancy, even 1% of the Bible, and you say 1% of the Bible is not true, do you know where you're left? You're left in theological liberalism and the position of the higher critics that say there are no miracles, there is no supernatural, and there is no God. Um... How many of you have heard of a guy named Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman, a while back, was a young, on-fire evangelical who loved, loved evangelism. And he decided he wanted to go into ministry, and so he went to Princeton Cemetery, I mean seminary. <laughs> Sorry. And he goes to seminary, and he has to write a paper on the supposed contradictions in Mark. One particular contradiction, I don't remember what it was. 
and by his own admission, he spends weeks working on this paper. He turns it in. He went through every exegetical method he could to defend the Bible. The professor gives him his paperback a couple weeks later. In the back of the paper, the professor wrote, what if Mark is just wrong? Another way of saying that, what if the Bible just isn't inerrant? What if there's just a little bit of error in the Bible? Um, by his own admission, that was the beginning of his apostasy. Bart Ehrman today is an atheist, and he spends his time telling college students the Bible cannot be trusted. When you deny 1% of the Bible and say it's error and has problems and cannot be trusted, that's where you're headed. You're headed for theological liberalism. When, you're, when a church, a local body, denies inerrancy, get ready. Another consequence of denying inerrancy, you will assume that apparent contradictions are errors, which is what we just talked about with Bart Ehrman. As someone who believes in inerrancy, when you go to the Bible and you see something like 1 Corinthians 10 and Numbers 25 that we looked at earlier, you see that and you say, well, clearly there must be a problem with me. I must be misunderstanding, and that'll drive you to study harder. But if 1% of the Bible is true, there's no need to study harder. You can just write that off as, that's an error. Another consequence is you'll reject doctrines that exceed your ability to understand because you will assume they are errors. The Bible must be an error when God said he created the universe in six days. That must be wrong. Because my mind and science can't prove it. Therefore, it has to be a problem with the Bible. Final consequence of denying inerrancy, which someone already said, you attack the very nature of God himself. Remember the inspiration train that you jumped on? That the Bible is written by God, that every word comes from God? If that's true, then any mistruth in Scripture, every factual error in Scripture must be attributed to God himself because God wrote the text. And if Scriptures claim something to be true when it's not, then it is God who is being dishonest. But we have a little problem with that, don't we? Titus 1-2, in the hope of eternal life, which the God who cannot lie promised from all of eternity. If God could lie to you about creation, then he'll lie to you about your eternal salvation. Hebrews 6-18, it is impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to deceive you. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth. I'm the standard of truth. John 14, 17, the Holy Spirit is described as the spirit of truth. That's the same spirit who inspired the Bible. To say that the Bible has errors is to deny the Scripture's testimony that God is perfectly truthful and never lies. John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. All of it is true. We're in hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics gives us the principles that we need to interpret the Bible. We already have some principles that you need to interpret the Bible. The first principle, scriptures are inspired of God. They are breathed out by him. Every word, every phrase, every thought ultimately comes from the mouth of God. That's the first principle you have to have if you're going to interpret the Bible. It comes from God. Second principle, because God is the author of scripture, then scriptures must take on his perfect nature. 
they must be as truthful as he is. Therefore, scriptures must be inerrant. And what scriptures affirm to be true must be true, and what scriptures affirm to be false must be false. Inspiration has another consequence, and that's the perspicuity of scripture. This comes directly from the idea that it's inspired. Perspicuity, that is, Scripture clearly reveals the truth of God's revelation so that you can understand it, that it can be understood. Wayne Grudem, who I don't agree with everything he writes, but his definition here is pretty good, says the clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. Now, let me build this out a little bit here. We discussed this last week, that God gave revelation. Revelation is God unveiling, revealing, making known His nature, His will, and His work. Revelation is God bringing Himself to you so that you can know who He is. And He gave that revelation to His prophets and to His apostles, and they in turn, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote that revelation down. That revelation was given for what purpose? So that you could know him? So that you could have a relationship with him? It was primarily intended for him to reveal himself, to give you commands on how to live, how to glorify him, to teach you how you can be saved from your sin. Let me ask you this question. What use is revelation if you can't understand it? If it's not clear, if it's incomprehensible, And surely God could have revealed it in such a way that it would be impossible for you to understand, right? If God wanted to make it hard, he could have made it really hard. He could have made it impossible. He could have sent an angel, revealed it to an angel in some divine heavenly language that none of us have ever seen or heard, and the angel wrote it all down and sent a book written in a language that you have no clue what it means. I'm sorry? On, yes, on golden tablets, and you need a seer stone and a hat to be able to read it. <laughs> By the way, that's Mormonism. But that's not what God did. And this is why inspiration matters. Because when we understand inspiration, we understand that God wrote how? Not through an angel. He wrote through men. People. Real people who lived on the earth, who experienced life in a sinful world. Consider Moses. Moses, Exodus 14, verse 11, And Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? So now go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth, and will instruct you what you shall speak. There's God saying, Your mouth is the one that's going to be saying it, and I'm going to instruct you in how to say it. He used a human agent, a human being. Matthew 2, verse 15, And he remained there until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. By the Lord. The ultimate source is God. But that revelation was given how? Through the prophet Hosea. Mark 12, 36, he quotes Psalm 110. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, I didn't give the whole verse there. David himself said, and he said it under the guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 verse 16, 
Men, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Which the Holy Spirit foretold how? By the mouth of David. Not through an angelic language. Through a normal human language that you can understand, that you can learn real languages that are common to the earth. And not only did he use a normal human language, but he used the languages of the day. The New Testament was not written in classical Greek, which most of the people didn't know. It was written in Koine Greek, the common man Greek, the street Greek, so that everybody could read it. And they wrote with the intention and the desire for other human beings to understand what they wrote. What author do you know writes a book with the intention of confusing all of his readers? Dan Brown. Dan Brown. Yeah. Exactly. The ones who are deceiving you want to do that. Only when they have something to hide do they make their text so confusing and difficult to understand. That's the only people who do it. People who want to confuse you. Uh, Wilhelmus Brockel, who wrote The Christian's Reasonable Service, said this. He said, a writer is flawed if he does not write in an intelligible manner. The more plain and clear his presentation of matters is, enabling the reader to discern the very marrow of the issue at hand, the more learned he is. If I were to get up here today and just give you a word soup, would it be a very effective class this morning? No, because nobody wants to communicate confusion. The writers of Scripture wanted you to understand. And I'm going to pick on the Catholic Church again, I'm sorry. Obvious example. For centuries, the Catholic Church prohibited lay people. Lay people would be everybody who's not a priest or a bishop of the Catholic Church. They prohibited lay people from reading the Bible. I should have put the quote in here. It's actually in the Council of Trent. I read it last night. It's in the Council of Trent. You are not permitted to read the Bible unless you have the permission of the, the bishop in your area. Why? Because they said the scriptures are too complex, too difficult for you to understand. And you need to be of this special class in order to be able to read and understand and interpret the Bible. And even today, while they encourage people now because of Vatican II, they encourage people to read the Bible... They still tell you, you cannot come to an interpretation on your own. You must accept the interpretation of the church. You need this infallible magisterium to tell you what it means because you can't understand the text on your own. That's why they insist on the teaching office of the church, and that's why they insist on a papacy. Because they say the Bible cannot be understood. But the writers of Scripture didn't seem to have that view. They didn't seem to have the view that only the special elite could read the Bible. Deuteronomy 18, speaking of the law of Moses. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it, this is the king, he shall read the law of Moses all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, to carefully observe all the words of this law and these statutes. If the text cannot be understood, if it's too complex for people to understand, why have the king read it at all? He was to read it with the intention of learning and then obeying. And you say, well, that's the king. He's in a special class. He's unique. Okay, Deuteronomy 31, verse 11. 
When all Israel comes to appear before Yahweh your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Read it to the entire nation. Everybody. What do you mean everybody? I mean everybody. Adults and children. Joshua 8 verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the sojourners who were going among them. Everybody can hear. Everybody can read it. Everybody can understand it. There's no point in reading it to you if you can't understand it. If I sat up here and read Mandarin, maybe one or two of you might understand it. I wouldn't even understand it. I don't know Mandarin. When Israel returned from exile in Nehemiah 13, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And even when you get into the New Testament, the book of Moses was said to be read constantly. Acts 15, 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has those who preach him in every city since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Sounds to me like the writers of Scripture want you to be reading Scripture. Jesus himself clearly thought that you could read and understand the Scriptures. Matthew 12, verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? And Jesus' argument here is, if you would have read, you would understand this. It's so clear, it's so obvious in Scripture that all you had to do was read it. And yet you don't understand. Matthew 19, verse 4, he said the same thing. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? If you would have read, you would have understood. Matthew 22. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. If you would have just read Exodus, you would understand this. Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue, and on the Sabbath he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, this is one of the prophets. The supposedly most confusing, most obscure text of the Bible. Jesus gets the scroll, he opens it, he reads it. He closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He assumed that they understood exactly what it meant. Paul expected the entire church to read his letters. He expected them to read it and to understand it. Colossians 4, verse 16, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Read it to the church. Everybody should hear it. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 27, I implore you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Even Paul said the scriptures are so clear that children can understand them. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. When you go to church and the entire church is assembled, read the scriptures. And he told Timothy, you've been reading the scriptures from childhood. uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, that would be Scripture, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
Paul thought scriptures could be understood. Well, what about the book of Revelation? Isn't that the book we're told today is so symbolic and so obscure that we can't understand it? Surely you wouldn't want to read that one. Revelation 1, verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. There's a blessing for reading and hearing. That assumes comprehension. That assumes it can be understood. The authors of Scripture were real people, and they wrote with the intention of people understanding what they were saying. God spoke through human authors, and his goal in using human authors was for him, for him to be able to reveal himself to you. Uh, Herman Bavinck, if God were to speak to us in a divine language, not a creature would understand him. But what spells out his grace is the fact that from the moment of creation, God stoops down to his creatures, speaking and appearing to them in human fashion. This is why all the names by which God calls himself and allows us to call him are derived from earthly and human relations. Scriptures are clear. They're understandable because God wants you to know who he is. He wants you to have a relationship with him. And he willfully revealed himself to us through the prophets, through the apostles, through Jesus Christ, and in Scripture. If Scriptures cannot be understood, if they are not clear, if they are not understandable, then God has not revealed himself. If Scriptures cannot be understood, then you cannot know his will, his works, or his nature. You cannot have a relationship with him. Moses Stewart, what is the Bible? A revelation from God? A revelation? If truly so, then it is designed to be understood. For if it be not intelligible, it surely is no revelation. If I can't understand the text, it reveals nothing. It unveils nothing. Brockle again. He's really good. He has given the scripture to make his mysteries known to man. It is therefore most certain that the Holy Scriptures incomparably surpass all other writings as far as clarity and perspicuity are concerned, and therefore are most supremely suitable for the instruction of mankind. All right, how does this relate to hermeneutics? Since that's what our class is. How does this relate to hermeneutics? First, it means that if you approach the text... You approach the language of the text like you do any other book. Why? Because it was written by men like every other book. And they use the language of men like every other book. You understand the text as a normal language. The language used is the vehicle for conveying the message of the author. And it is the vehicle that God uses to pass on his revelation. You don't go outside of the language to try to find what it means. You use the language, you use the vehicle that was used. That's why God used a human language for you. So you would have a means to grasp what he said. Secondly, perspicuity does not mean that everything in Scripture is easy to understand. Some of you are thinking, man, I've, I've been reading parts of my Bible and I don't understand it. It doesn't mean everything is easy to understand. There are transcendent truths in Scripture that exceed the finite mind's ability to grasp. If you can fully grasp the Trinity... You're a lot better than I am because there are truths that exceed your ability to understand. Even the dual natures of Christ. How does that work? But what God has revealed, he has made it to where you can understand, even if you have to work at it. 
there are things you have to work at. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. They belong to him. There are things he has not answered, he has not revealed to you, like the full idea of the Trinity. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. They were revealed. They are for you to understand. Third, perspicuity does not invalidate the need for study nor the need for hermeneutics. Just because the text is clear doesn't mean you don't need to bridge those gaps we talked about last week. The time, the culture, the geography, the language gap. You still have to bridge those gaps. And that takes study. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as workmen, as workmen who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This takes work, it takes effort, and it requires that you understand the basic principles of hermeneutics. Fourth, it doesn't mean that every text is equally easy to understand. There are some passages of scriptures that are just harder for you to get, harder for you to grasp. 2 Peter 3, verse 16, he's talking about Paul's writing. He says, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, so as they do the rest of the scriptures. There are some passages that are just harder. It's going to take more work. And there are some passages you can read to your little children, and they'll just understand it immediately. Perspicuity does not mean you're not going to have work. It doesn't mean you're not going to have trouble or difficulty. It also doesn't mean that you don't need the Holy Spirit. You're still a sinner. Your, your, um, your mind is still affected by sin. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. For the sake of time, you know it. You still need the Spirit's help. And finally, it does not remove your need for biblically qualified teachers. God has given you biblically qualified teachers who are uniquely gifted for teaching. And he's given you that for a reason. Because they're needed. All right, any questions? That's perspicuity. Let me close this in prayer. We'll be done. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you have revealed yourself in a perfectly inerrant text. You have given your revelation of yourself in, in absolute truth. And it's a truth that we can trust, that we can depend upon. And it is clear. It is understandable. And so we ask that you would help us all to be good workmen who do not need to be ashamed that we would accurately handle your truth, that we would convey that accurately, uh, not only in our own hearts, but to those around us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.